Welcome to Backstory with me, Noreen Mir. We have a wonderful guest with us this week. We do. Where is he? <laughs> we often hear him uh, talk about books and creative writing and sometimes more about political issues, but in a sort of satirical manner. He is the founder of the Asia Literary Review and also the Hong Kong International Literary Festival and the Man Asian Literary Prize. Well, it's time to get up close and personal with renowned author Nuri Vitachi. Nuri, welcome to the program. Hi, great to be here. Now, where's this creative guy you said was in the room? You, you were suggested uh, amongst a few uh, listeners as well. How come you haven't got Nuri on the show? And and thank you very much for, for obliging and, and being with us this morning. Well, so, you haven't seen my bill yet. <laughs> I know. Radio 3, I think we've got a bigger budget this year. I, I hope, I hope. So tell us a little bit about sort of um, your childhood. Where are you originally from? What did your parents do? So uh, I was uh, born in a place called Colombo, Sri Lanka. And... Um, a war broke out and uh, you know I've always felt a bit guilty about that but my mother says it probably wasn't much to do with my my arrival but uh, I did arrive at the same time as the the famous uh, singer Leeds Tamil war that um, raged in Sri Lanka for, for, for decades and um, and the war was mostly up in the in the north of the country in the Jaffna area but it kind of crept down and once he got to our house, uh, you know, my father said, OK, we've got to leave. So um, so we left when I was still a kid. And so we went wandering around the world, as, uh, as one does. Yeah. To the UK or where in particular? Where did your parents first bring you to then? Well, the thing is, my, I mean, my father was, he was the editor of the main daily newspaper in Colombo. And when the war started, um, the government put out a, an, an edict saying, you, sh- you, you know, thou shalt not mention the war. And he thought, this is ridiculous, you know. I mean, I don't mind not mentioning, you know, the flower show, but I'm not going to not mention the war. Anyway, so um, he wrote a book about the war, um, smuggled it out of Sri Lanka, and it was published in London by a big publisher. So he got instantly famous, and he won the uh, the Magsaysay Award, which is like a big uh, Asian book prize. And... Um, so he was very happy about that. My mother said, "Oh no, you'll get us on the on the sort of on the death list." And quite a few people had disappeared. Um, so, um, so um, my father said, "Oh no, no, I'll be all right." And then people started following him around with guns and stuff. And um, one day, actually, it's a nice dramatic incident. One day, we got a phone call, and um, it was from the chief of police who said, uh, "The prime minister has ordered me to arrest you. Um, please." Uh, why don't you make sure you're not there when I arrive? And so my father said, uh, children, we're going for a walk. And then um, the phone rang again, and it was the Minister of of Immigration, who was a cousin. Uh, and he said, um, the Prime Minister's ordered me to confiscate your passports. Why don't you use them? And so my father said, uh, come on, children, we're going for a drive. And so we drove to the airport. And I can remember asking my father, I was a toddler, Daddy, why are we driving in the middle of the night? And he said, um, there's less traffic at this time, which made sense to a kid. Doesn't make any sense now. But yeah, so we just got on the first plane and uh, it took us to Singapore. This is where we landed. But I remember uh, as a kid being much influenced by this. I was thinking, you know, whoa, people with guns are chasing us out of the country just because of something my dad wrote. I want to be a writer. I want to be 
chased by people with guns. Has that so, happened yet? No, my <laughs> whole career's a failure. Maybe chased after by this journalists. Sh- maybe after this show, I'll be chased by people with guns. Mm, what can I say? <laughs> that will get people with guns chasing me. Maybe not, but or maybe like a forced disappearance or something. No, no. I can start a books a bookshop. Couldn't you I? could, yeah, and publish. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Did you have a happy childhood? Mm, I had a very happy childhood. Uh, my um, let's see. My father, my father was on the road as a journalist. Uh, uh, had a complicated childhood. He um, he had th- he had three wives, which made it complex, and um, so was never much at home. But um, he wasn't any good at the parenting thing. I mean, Asian dads, you know, Asian dads are like, you know, it's uh, it's funny. Um, I was at the church youth group uh, up in Shenghuan, and they were talking about fathers and how god is a father to us and i was thinking oh you wouldn't do this sermon if you knew what asian dads are like you know asian dads are a nightmare so uh yeah i must have a word with the with the minister about that um yeah anyway yeah so uh, my dad was a typical asian dad so saw me maybe three times a year and um didn't pay any attention other than that uh so it's mostly brought up by my mother who eventually got fed up we were living in malaysia at that time and um, she just thought, where have, I, where have I visited that's nice? And uh, so she wrote a letter to my father saying, um, I decided to take the children to move to London, um, buy us a house or something. And so she just got on a plane and off she went. And so we landed in UK, lived with friends for a while. And eventually my father did buy a house in London. So, uh, so we lived there. What did your mum do? She, I mean, she was... Uh, Quiet little Asian lady in a sari, but quiet little Asian ladies are very powerful, dangerous people. <laughs> she wrote a, for example, she wrote a dictionary once when she was young and knew every word in the dictionary. And so we got, when we got to London, she decided to join the London Scrabble League. And everyone watched this little Asian lady come in with a sari and talking like this in a Sri Lankan accent. And, they, you know, they seeded her with the easy... And she went... <laughs> she just basically slaughtered everybody and went straight to the top of the North London Scrabble League. And they said, you know, where's she come from? It's like she's memorised the dictionary or something. Well, actually, I wrote the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> so. You come from a very sort of literary family then. Mm. Did that have an influence on, on you wanting to, to become an author? <clears throat> I guess um, I guess it did in the in the sense that um, we were we were very you know the bookish types so none of us did any any sport uh, I mean I was quite fortunate really because it's quite hard to make a living in that area but uh, it seems to have panned out thank God yeah did you do well at school um, not really um, my um, my mother was she was she was on her own can't really blame her but uh, she just thought of it as a Sri Lankan village so she just thought well uh, look on the map oh there's a school over here let's send them to that school and uh, that school was such a disaster I went to it was basically it was um it was a school for rejects and delinquents it was a sort of special school and um so um well I went to a primary school for a while first and that was okay but then I transferred to the secondary school and it was it was basically 28 neo-nazis and me because uh, because of this special school status. And uh, so, well, it was very educational, shall I say. School of Hard Knocks, quite literally. There was no... Uh, I was always interested in things sort of on science and spirituality. So I did... So I, so I said, can I do an... Can I do an R... What do you call it? RS or religious studies yeah, at A-level? And they said, We've, no one's ever 
done that here, so we don't have any such course. So I said, well, I don't mind. Just put me in for the exam. So um, they put me in for the exam, and I just studied it by myself, and they got an A. Wow. So, yeah, so if you're interested in something, you know. Who needs school? Who needs school, yeah. So I did science and religion and uh, and English in the end for my A-levels. What was your first job, Nuri, after you graduated? What did you first do? Did you go straight into being a journalist? Yeah, I did. I, I worked for the Sheffield Star. Uh, which was very tricky because, you know, have you been to the north of England? It's a very nice place, but they don't speak English. <laughs> you know, it's from, Hello, hello, how are you? Hello, uh, my duck. Giova. They had loads of phrases I still don't understand uh, to this day. I know, Nuri, you brought along a song as well uh, with you. Uh, hmm? do, what song did you bring along with you and what significance does it have in your life? Well, I thought a lot about, you know, what's my favourite piece of music? And, uh, um... You know, I'm, I've, I've lots. I'm, I'm a big Beatles fan, Simon and Garfunkel. I love that 60s sound. But um, did you ever hear of a guy called Ennio Morricone? He's a composer. He does all no. the greatest um, uh, soundtracks. Um, you know, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Dwee-dwee-doo. Yeah. But his, my best, my favourite one was Cinema Paradiso. Actually, it was not a great movie, but the music was just utterly inspired. And, uh, you know, you know, if God has ever composed a piece of music and zapped it down to human, you know, go compose that. Yeah. OK, well, let's have a listen to this song then. And afterwards, we'll talk more about Nuri's journey to Hong Kong as well.
talk a little bit more about your journey to Hong Kong? How yeah. I read somewhere that you were on a on a honeymoon, and yeah. you you came to Hong Kong. And how, how, tell us about it. Uh, yes, so this, this was in eighty eighty six. Um, I just um, I just kind of made it to Fleet Street. I was still on a sort of freelance. Not, well, what they call shift basis, where you do you, where we do shifts. I was doing shifts on various uh, big newspapers, you know, from the Times to the Express to the Telegraph, and I wrote stuff for the Guardian. So I was feeling I've just made it. And um, my wife said, uh, "England's boring. Let's go to Asia." And I said, "No, no, no. I'm from Asia. Asia's boring. Let's stay in England." And uh, you know, women always win these arguments. So I said, "Look, we'll go. We'll, we'll leave England for a year." But I like England, and. Um, so we 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 uh, decided we'd spend one year on honeymoon traveling around the world, and uh, remember my brother-in-law saying, "Oh, you'll never come back. You know, you'll find somewhere more interesting, and you'll never come back." And um, well, he turned out to be right because this is still technically my honeymoon because um, our wedding presents are still untouched uh, in the UK, waiting for our return. And uh, of course, who wants a toaster from 1986 now? It's probably you know another 20 years. It'll be interesting. It's vintage. Yeah. It'll be vintage in another 20 or 30 years. At the moment, it's just old. What was it about Hong Kong that made yeah. you stay? Well, I mean, the official story for the biography is that we were enchanted by the beautiful place and people, but the real story is that we didn't have any money. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so we had. Um, I remember we had. I think we had nine dollars or nine US dollars where we got here, and. Um, so we spent our first night in the YMCA, found that was too expensive. So um, we uh, moved to Chongqing Mansion, which is which is a bit cheaper. And um, and I managed to find the job that week before we were completely uh, destitute uh, at a at a magazine. So um, so then uh, so then I thought, well, we'll earn some money and then go on. But by by the time we'd been here a few months, we'd fallen in love with the place and the people. And uh, I still am rapturously in love with the place. Yeah. yeah. Did you see yourself being so successful as well? And I know you're going to say no, not so. But you really made it. You really well, made a name for yourself in Hong yeah. Kong, in Asia. Did you, when you came to Hong Kong, did you yeah. expect that? Mm, that's a tricky question. I mean, I, I think anybody in the artistic field has to be incredibly conceited to make it. You have to sort of think, uh, you know, you have yet to shrug off uh, criticism. Um, but. Uh, uh, on the other hand, there's there's not much competition here in the creative area. So if you want to be the you know the greatest composer or cartoonist or or short story writer in Hong Kong, it's, it's easy. No one else is doing it. So. You're so <laughs> modest. No, yeah. but in terms of writing, you you write uh, such a wide range of things uh, as well. You appeal to yeah a, a really wide uh, different groups, wide groups. Um, I suppose perhaps let's talk about children writing. How yeah. did you sort of get into that from yeah. newspaper writing to to children writing? We we did the um, the, the Hong Kong uh, Literary Festival, and that included the Hong Kong Young Literary Festival. And um, and I noticed after a couple of years, we never had any Hong Kong writers. In fact, we never had any Asian writers. That everybody was imported from Australia, US, and UK. So I just thought, wow, this is a huge gap. And um, so we did try and get some local. Asian children's book authors, but they were just terrible. You could see why people didn't read them. They were just awful books. So, um, you know, by that time I was writing novels. So I thought, um, okay, I enjoy being with the kids. Um, I did a lot of school visits and um, a huge discovery of mine was, uh, you know, I'd write a funny story and I think, oh, they'll love this bit. 
And then I thought around this sad bit, they'll be so devastated. And I'd go and I'd read my new story. And at the funny bit, stony silence. Oh, no. At the sad bit, riotous laughter. And that's when I realised, wow, kids' brains, they really do work completely differently to, to ours. And so um, I started testing every story with, with kids, either at school or at home, and then rewriting them completely. And um, that was one of the great revelations of my life, is that um, the brain, reason, rationalism are, are all really bad news. You don't trust them. Don't trust them one bit. You know, you have to go with your heart. And that's what, that's what works with kids. You go with your heart. So, so absurdity works. Understatement works. Um, so I mean, it's the same with uh, it's the same with humor. You just have to be absurd. You know, um, a lot of people think genocide is a bad thing. You know, sort of understatement works and absurdity works much better than actually thinking up a rational joke. Yeah. Were you a class clown? Out of curiosity. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, yeah, you're funny and yeah, you, yeah. you make jokes. Were you a class no, no, not at all. I was, I was the shy nerd sitting at the back. <laughs> didn't, didn't, never opened his mouth. Really? Yeah, yeah. Not outspoken? No, I was very shy. Yeah. How, how did you overcome that shyness? Or yeah. when, when did you sort of become less shy? I think um, when I was... Uh, I, I, I did a course in journalism, a postgraduate journalism course in UK... Uh, after my degree and before work. And I ended up on the gossip column, doing the gossip column at the you know university newspaper or something as a part of this course. And I find I was really good at it. I was really good. And uh, I realised that by the end of the my first week, you know, one of the teachers was on, on probation again for misbehaviour and one of the kids and, you know, and um, they were threatening to throw him and one of the students and me out of the university uh, because of all these nefarious dealings that I was, I was, uh, I was writing about saying, these are, you know, these are illegal things. You should be concentrating on other things. Well, no, you should be reporting to the police, (laughs) not putting them in the thing. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'm good at this. So we stuck to that gossip humor. Let's talk about things that you've established in Hong Kong and and for Asia. What what made you? What gave you the idea to establish the the Asian Literary Review and and the International Literary Festival and also the prize as well? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I need to you know share credit, share credit. Jane Caymans uh, really. Uh, she was an Australian short story writer, and um, she said, "Look, we have these fantastic literary festivals in." Uh, in Australia, but there's nothing like that in Asia. So let's start one. So, so she and I started pl- planning this, and we we managed to get one literary celebrity along, and that was Timothy Mo. He was a guy who was always on the Booker shortlist, and he was half half Hong Kong and half British. So I thought, oh, he's perfect. And we found over the years, that if you get one celebrity author, then you and then two or three medium grade authors, then you get all the sort of lower ranked authors. But you get a nice little package, you know. So um, and it just worked a treat. Treat every year we managed to get a Booker Prize winner or a Nobel Prize candidate or somebody. So uh, so that worked out really well. And it was really was new to Asia. And since then, you know, we've seen the Shanghai Festival and the you know, Ubud Festival and Sri Lanka, so Jaipur, they all came later. What are some challenges in terms of setting up these sort of festivals? Because Hong Kong is, I always think Hong Kong is one of those busy, busy places where if you ask people, do they enjoy reading? Yes. But if, do you find the time to read? 
Not really. So what's the sort of, you're setting up something that maybe people don't have time to do. Yeah, yeah. I kind of don't mind that. A lot of people worry about this, but I don't. Because like, if you look back, you know, I've still, you know, I said I loved maths. I'm still a numbers guy. And if you look back, you know, 18th century, 17th century, reading was always a habit for the top 5%. It's always been from, from, from when it started, when it became a, a common thing to, to today. It's always been the top 5%. And um, so if, so when I look around and find 95% of people don't read, I think it's no change. It's just normal. That's just how it is. It's the smart one's will, you know. You, you are a maths guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How often do you read? You, you can be as honest a, yes, as you like. Yes. You can say you you don't manage to read thirty books a month. If you... <laughs> yes. Yeah, I read all the time. Yeah. So I've got I've got books uh, by my bedside. Never go to sleep without reading, and uh, I have audio books on all the time. So I get through vast numbers uh, of books. And I I hate television. So yeah, if, if someone puts a TV on in my house, I stick on a stick on my earphones and have yeah. audio books what yeah. sorts of books do you read mm. i suppose everything yeah all sorts i mean i quite like i like popular books i like you know i mean like stephen king i mean no one no one gives him any literary prizes but he's a great storyteller i mean the shawshank redemption was a fantastic movie um so was uh what was that other one he did uh stand by me i mean he does really good stories so i don't mind popular literature you know, as you know, I do force myself to read the Booker Prize winners as well, but <laughs> some of those are less fun. Tell us your hobbies then. Apart from reading, I suppose that's one <laughs> yeah. of your hobbies. What else do you do for fun? Uh, well, I love music, so I have a, I have a little. Uh, you know, I have bands from time to time. My best band is a band of eleven to thirteen year old girls I managed for a couple of years, and we we did we had some we did some fun. Uh, go touring around youth clubs and church clubs and things. Um, so I still do that. Last week I did, um, I did the David Bowie challenge, which is where you have to, you pick out three David Bowie songs from one hat and three musical styles from the other. And then you have to, to match them. And, um, first one was easy. First one was, um, Starman in 1940s style. And 1940s style is really fun, sort of jiving stuff. And that was, that was easy. So we recorded that. And then the second one was, um, uh, uh, European folk alpine music for uh, Life on Mars, which was that was tricky because Life on Mars is actually musically complex and alpine, you know, accordions and stuff. That was difficult. And I decided to sing it in a German accent. <laughs> um, and then the third one I completely failed at. It was uh, the third one was Space Oddity in the style of Kanye West. I just thought, this, you know, I'm not going to murder David Bowie. He, he, he inspired many people and he's. He died a sad death, so I not, so I failed the failed the David Bowie challenge. He's also got more songs coming out as well after his death. I read as well, so more yeah. more presents coming our way. Yes, yes. Although you know, it's like Michael Jackson. You know, they they go they go in and they dig out all the rejects and then put them out as new songs. The I think greatest, yeah, greatest yeah. non-hits. Or... Yes, yes. The secret album that he was saving up. You know, don't believe a word of it. Let's talk about your personal life a, a little bit more, Nuri. So you have three children. Yes. Um, oh, four if you count my wife. <laughs> you look after her as well. Um, uh, growing up, perhaps not so close to your father, did that ha- have a sort of impact on you being being a father yourself? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so I decided, you know, I'd be a good father. And uh, um, my wife works much harder than I do, so... Um, so I was was the mum in the family. I'd get up and make the lunch boxes and take them Aww. to school. Also, being a writer, you know, I had flexible hours where she she didn't. 
Um, so I've always been the mum and she's been the dad. So she drives around, she's in charge of the car and the, the sensible things. And, um, and I'm the family sort of, the, I'm the cook and the deliverer to school and that sort of thing. But did you miss your dad growing up though? Yeah. Why? Well, uh, yeah. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I think because um, you need you need models. Boys need models, and if they don't have one in the house, like just I remember the simplest things. Like for example, children skip. They skip. They prance. They mince around. You know, that's what they, <laughs> they don't sort of walk in that sort of solid thumping way that adult males do. And if you don't have an adult male sort of slouching around the house. You know, you skip around. So I think I was probably about 10 or 11. I suddenly realised all the boys in the school were now sort of slouching, hands in pockets, sort of. And you were still skipping. And I was still skipping. <laughs> and I thought, where did they learn that? You know, and there's all sorts of things like that that dads unconsciously teach you. So, uh, you know, I mean, my theory is all children are kind of girls when they start. And then when they're 11 or 12, half of them learn to... to, to you know, uh, uh, to to be boys, like for example, all children say "nighty night" and things like that, and adult women can use those words. No, it's not a problem. But an adult male uses them. It's sort of like, ooh. Do you still him. use "nighty night"? Yeah, no, no, no. I I masculinized everything when I was like eleven, twelve, thirteen. I thought, okay, I don't have a dad. I need to to find. I need to research this. Yeah. So in in your sort of teenage years, who was sort of like a good solid influence and who sort of helped because you know, growing up sometimes you you need somebody to tell you oh, you know, you can try this job, you can try this yeah. job and who, who was it who was that person in, in your yeah. life? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, um there was um I always liked odd odd people and there was a um at the local youth club there was a guy who uh, he went off to be a monk in the end but he was very he was he was re- he was very religious but very gay at the same time and i thought oh there's an interesting mix so um so uh so he he influenced me a lot because like um y- you know you you learn that the sort of values of society are, are really just worthless there's a whole different set of values that you have to, to go for my mother was a Buddhist, my father was a Muslim, and these friends were Christians. I thought, okay, I've got the big three all around me here. Me <laughs> yeah. too, oh my goodness, right. this was, Great. yeah. Really. It's, uh, it's nice to have all those things. You know, and I also had science, because I was always a science nut. And, um, and science is very spiritual when you get deep into it, when you get into that the quantum physics and the cosmology. and uh, the, sort of totally the, the very core of your being is yeah, <laughs> yes. physics as well. Yes. All right, Nuri, before I let you go, last question. If you were to give a piece of advice to the 20-year-old self, with, with all the experience that you have now, um, what sort of, yeah, what advice would you give to yourself? Advice I would give to my 20-year-old self. You know, I'd say, um, if, if I went back to 20, I'd make all the same mistakes, but make them sooner. Nuri, what a pleasure to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for, for joining us on Backstory. I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed chatting with you, as, as did I. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nuri.